0: All right, Joshua chapter one. I, you know, we finished Isaiah, and uh, I'll be it'll be nineteen years that I've been here pastoring, and we've gone through almost the whole entire Bible. I have just Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Song of Solomon left of the Old Testament to do. And I thought, you know, I don't want to go from Isaiah right to Jeremiah. Let's let's take a break. And and I thought, you know, Joshua is just the right book. I think to get into, to where we're at right now, and so prayed about it, and so we're going to be in the book of Joshua. Let's uh, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for uh, the work that you're doing in Honduras, Lord. We do pray that, Lord, as you would lead us, Lord, that uh, we would walk in those steps, Lord, that that you'd have for us towards that mission field and that opportunity. Lord, we also pray for tonight, Lord, your hand of blessing upon our time together, we pray that, Lord, that you'd speak through uh, Gabe downstairs as he's sharing your word with the youth, Lord, that they would have just a heart for you and for your word, Lord, as he shares, Lord, uh, your words. And, Lord, for all the kids downstairs, we pray just your blessing upon them as they, they spend time on your word tonight, Lord. And we thank you for this time upstairs here where we can be blessed, Lord, as we look in your word and see what you have for us this evening. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we we begin the book of Joshua. Why? I mean, why would anyone want to study the book of Joshua, a book that gives really grim accounts of, of slaughter and war and conquest? Well, because Joshua really is a book about possessing your possessions. It's about the children of Israel laying claim to the land that God has given to them. The New Testament counterpart to Joshua would be more like the book of Ephesians. Well, Paul wrote to the Ephesians doctrinally, the book of Joshua illustrates it practically. Uh, Ephesians is about realizing the blessings in Christ and walking in them. And Joshua illustrates how the children of Israel stepped out in faith to walk in the blessings that God has given them and possess the land that he had promised them. So it really has some incredible application for us as believers concerning moving forward to the Lord and experiencing all that He has for us as a church. I think it's a great book to start out our year with, especially. It's also a great book when it comes to raising up strong leaders in the church. I believe that in our churches today we are in desperate need for strong leaders. I think of when I first came to Christ you know, I was—I just turned 21 years old, and I was going to Harvest Christian Fellowship. And Greg, Pastor Greg, was like 26 to 27, and there was probably nobody in the church under the age of 30. And uh, but these 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 really kids—I mean, they were raised up in leadership, and God was moving mightily. We were pretty pretty young church. I would love to see that again. Uh, God working that way, young people being raised up into leadership, and God using them mightily, even at ages of 20, 21 years old. Now I believe for that to happen, the older men and women need to model Christian leadership and we need to raise up those that, that's evident God's callings upon their lives. And that's really what we're looking at with the book of Joshua. It begins with God passing on the mantle of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Moses has died for 40 years. Joshua had faithfully served Moses and, and Moses faithfully led Joshua. But now it was time for Joshua to lead. And uh, uh, how did Joshua feel about this new responsibility? Well, the first chapter kind of gives us a hint. Within the first nine verses, we read three times that the Lord says to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Now, you think that if God has to say something three times, then it's probably something that you're not really having the strength and the courage to do. I mean, it would, it would imply that Joshua felt weak and fearful. And also, God also tells him, Do not be dismayed. The word dismayed is an interesting word. It means to be shattered, broken, or terrified. I mean, think about this. Joshua is now leading these millions of people that, that it was all on Moses' shoulders. Now all of a sudden it's him. And, and God's saying, don't be terrified. Joshua's going, I'm terrified. And why, I mean, why would that be? Well, Joshua didn't face an easy task. The Canaanites that were in the land, I mean, they were a fierce people. Their their cities were fortified. Their armies were kept in fighting condition. The land was primarily mountainous, making an invasion, a a conquest, very difficult for them. So Joshua needed strong faith in God. He also would need persistence. I I think that's a primary important aspect of Christian leadership. A, a, A good leader, you can't quit. You can't quit. Commentator John Stott says about this persistence, it is one thing to dream dreams and see visions. It's another thing to convert a dream into a plan of action. It is yet a third to persevere when, when it, with it when opposition comes, for opposition is bound to arise. So when opposition comes, then you've got to persevere. And Joshua would face many pressures. Some we will see were internal, but most of them were external. But through it all, Joshua did persevere, and he became a man of, of great faith and courage. Two characteristics made him that that man of action. He was submissive to God, and he was obedient to the Word of God. He was faithful uh, in meeting the responsibilities and obligations placed upon him. Now, a little background on Joshua. He started out his life as a slave in Egypt. He was born in slavery. It was in that setting that Joshua learned obedience. He learned submission. Then when Joshua was about 40 years old, he experienced a long-awaited deliverance from, from Egypt. So I think in the same way, as we look at this, it kind of illustrates the spiritual condition that we were in prior to coming to Christ. We were slaves to this world. We were slaves to the, to the flesh, our own flesh. We were slaves to the devil. And when we came to Christ, we experienced the deliverance from sin and, and guilt. We're forgiven. But then now it's time to walk in that faith, to walk the walk, to fight the good fight, as Paul calls it. And that is where the Promised Land is a type of our Christian walk, facing the battles and struggles daily of the flesh of the world and Satan. Joshua, we see, faces the same battles. Now, the first time Joshua comes to focus, really, as a main character, is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9. You don't need to turn there, but it was about a year after the Israelites left Egypt. They found themselves opposed to Amalek, a ruthless and, and relentless foe of Israel. And it says in Exodus 178 and 9 Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Now, here's what we have is it's what's called the principle of first mention. This is the first time, that really, that Joshua is mentioned in the scriptures. And there's always something interesting about this principle of first mention about the person or the thing in Scripture. Most of the time, it's the key to a person's life, or if it's an object, it's a key, it has some significance to it. So such is the case with Joshua. He had learned to obey, and now he's being qualified to command. He's been obedient, now he's going out to command. Very important principle here. There are persons who... Who They want to have the authority. They want to go out and and supervise others, but they themselves have never learned to take orders themselves. They've never learned to be in the submission to those under authority. And that can be very true in ministry. They may look at a leader in ministry and say, oh, I can do better than that guy, or or, I can do better than this person over here, or I should be the one doing that. But to be a minister is, is to be a servant. And if you haven't learned to submit to the leadership over you, then you're really not prepared to be a leader yourself. Joshua, no doubt, learned to take orders while he was a slave. And he continued his training, you know, listening to Moses as Moses would, would lead him, and, and he was that servant as well. But Joshua's information and orders came directly from Moses. Now, it's as a warrior that Joshua first appeared to us, a man of war, as I said already, Exodus 17, 8, and 9. This first battle that he, he faced was not an ordinary one, and, and it really gives us a picture of the type of warfare that we would face throughout our, he would face throughout his life. It wasn't a, so much a physical battle, but a spiritual battle as well. Uh, it, it was not fought and won merely because they were stronger or mightier, but they won on the basis of faith. And, and, and let me explain. You might remember the story from this first battle. It was when Moses held up his hands, and while his hands were up, Israel prevailed. When he let them down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became so heavy that they took the stone and put under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur held up his hands at one on one side and one on the other and his hands stayed up until the sun went down, the Bible says. And it says there that, that, that Joshua defeated Amalek. See, Joshua fought the physical battle in the valley but the spiritual battle was fought in the mountaintop in the place of intercession. Joshua obeyed Moses interceded, so by prayer and faith and physical combat, the battle was won. In other words, as Joshua was was fighting the battle in the valley, Moses was making intercession to the Father. As Moses continued to pray, the battle was finally won. Listen, the same thing is going on in our daily lives today. The Lord Jesus, He's at the right hand of the Father, and He's making intercession for us. He's praying for us that we might be victorious. Uh, potential victory is held out as long as we trust him and go forward saying no to self or no to the flesh or no to the devil. See, Israel's victory over Amalek required two things. The aggressive warfare of Israel led by Joshua and the intercession of Moses. One without the other would simply not do. And again, the same thing is true for us spiritually. We have the assurance of the intercession of our Savior, but our responsibility is to walk in faith, walk in obedience to the Word of God under the control of the Holy Spirit and fight the good fight. With this combination, victory is certain. Now one more thing before we get to verse 1. Even though there are many hymns that have been written about Canaan and the promised land as a type of heaven, songs such as, you know, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming to take me home. You know that song, you guys know that song, the famous one. I won't continue to sing it, but the lyrics go on to say, when I look over Jordan coming for to carry me home, I see a band of angels coming after me, coming forward to carry me home. And the song talks about seeing Canaan and the promised land as a type of heaven. Well, if Canaan represents dying and going to heaven, then you're going to be very disappointed in heaven because as you read through the book of Joshua, there's a lot of fighting going on in Canaan and the promised land. There's a lot of failure going on, there's a lot of conquering and trouble going on, judgment going on before they occupy the land. I don't picture heaven to be like that. I mean, do you? I mean, unless you guys like to fight a lot, maybe that's your idea of heaven, but that's not my idea. No, my idea of heaven is what the book of Philippians, Paul says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. I'm looking for something far better than putting up a fight with somebody. We get enough of that here. So, so what does it represent? Not heaven. Again, it represents the spirit-filled life now. The Christian life now. It represents the the, the spirit, uh, the life in the spirit under the control of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the control of the flesh right now. Yeah, Canaan was a scene of conflict. Heaven, there's going to be no more conflict. Really, the nations of Canaan, as we will see, become a type of the principalities and powers that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, when Joshua led the people of Israel into Canaan, he not only had to overcome the the human leaders and the the Canaanite armies and, and the armies that were there, but there's a spiritual battle going on as well. But again, God has raised up a leader at the right time just for the right purpose. And so, with that in a way of a very long introduction, we now come to verse 1 of chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Now, the name Joshua... It's a very significant name. It was given to him by Moses. Originally his name was called Hosea, which means salvation. But Moses, after he saw the quality and all in this man, called him Joshua or Yahshua, which is Jehovah is, or Jehovah's salvation, or Jehovah is salvation. Now it's the same name as Jesus. Uh, this is in Hebrew, Yahshua. In the Greek, it's Jesus. So we find in Je- Yeshua a very interesting type of Jesus Christ who will lead the people into the promised land. Again, we read that Moses was dead. Moses was a representative, a picture really of of the law. He brought the law. Moses could not lead Israel into land because of his failure. Remember his failure? He misrepresented God, striking the rock instead of speaking to it. With much anger, Numbers 20, verse 10, he said, Listen, you rebels, he shouted, must we bring you water from this rock? And the Lord's kind of looking on and going, What is this we we're talking about here? What's going on here? I'm paraphrasing this, but the Lord said, I'm not angry with my people, but you're misrepresenting me to the people. I told you to speak to the rock, and you're striking the rock. Because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. But I think the bigger picture is that Moses, again, represents the law. He broke the law, and the problem was not with the law, but with Moses, just as the problem is with us. The, the law reveals to us that we fall short of the glory of God. But grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Moses, my servant is dead, we read. Only Jesus, our Savior, our Joshua, can lead us into the place of blessing that he has for us. So he goes on, the Lord tells Joshua in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. And this is great. God says, Joshua, this is all the land that I have for you. It was clear. I mean, Joshua was to assume immediate command of the people and lead them across uh, the Jordan into the promised land. Now, for years, centuries, actually, nations have questioned Israel's right to the land that, that God was about to give them. But the main point here that we read is that God gave them this land. It wasn't something that they were trying to go out and do on their own. God came to them and says, I have this land for you. And when God gives something to someone, there should be no question as to who it belongs to then. I mean, Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell within it. So because if God owns it, then God can give it away to whoever he wants to give it to. But notice where he has given them. We read in verse 4 that it's from the borders from the wilderness... This would be modern-day Lebanon. As far as the great river, that is the river Euphrates. That's over in Iraq and then all the, and all the land of the Hittites. And then to the great sea, that's a, the Mediterranean, towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. I mean, if you were to look on this on a world map, you would see how vast this territory really is. Uh, I mean, God promised them some 300,000 square miles. But get this. At the peak of David, uh, King David, followed by King Solomon, they only took about 30,000 square miles. Here's what what I want you to see. God promised them, as their land allotment, this huge amount of which they only took one-tenth of what God had for them. Isn't that interesting? They never occupied Iraq. They never occupied all the way up into Syria and all the way up into Lebanon. Those became territories of others. So even at Israel's peak, they only took one-tenth of everything that God was giving to them. Why is that? Well, because they looking back at verse 3. He said, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Man, if they really thought about that, they said, say, Man, let's get walking. Let's get moving. <laughs> Look at all we can get. I mean, it was all yours. I mean, it was a gift. All they had to do was open this gift. I think of it this way. Again, I shared this on Sunday. Our, our kids gave, you know, Lisa and I, uh, Amazon Alexa. You know, I, I've been playing with it all week. It, it's great. But what would happen if, if, you know, Christmas morning when, you know, I, I ripped off the wrapping paper and we said, thanks, and I took it still in the box and set it on the kitchen counter and left it there. Didn't open it, didn't set it up. Then a few, you know, months later, now it's summertime, and now that gift is still sitting on the kitchen counter all in open. My kids are going to go, what's up with that? I mean, we gave you this gift. Why aren't you using this? You know, uh, why would we not open it and see all that it does for us? In the same way, if God gives you all of this land, but you only walk on a little portion of it, you're not possessing your possessions. The, the, the stipulation is that you have to possess your possessions. So it says in Ephesians 1 that God has given us every blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. God has blessed us. We have to look for those. We have to open up those blessings. How much do we occupy? How much do we possess? How much victory do we walk in? Do you realize all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus? So here the Lord says you've got to walk through the land and where you walk, it's yours. And that's exactly what Joshua and Caleb told the first generation. Remember, they they went into the land and said, this is great, the Lord has given it to us, let's go for it. And what do the people go? Oh, no, there's giants in the land, we can't go in there. But Joshua and Caleb said, hey, the Lord gave it to us. Let's walk through it. Let's put our souls down and our feet down on the ground. Let's go for it. But here's my point. Even in the end, they didn't occupy all that God had for them. Because of that stipulation, every place of the, the, place, place of the sole of your foot would tread upon, I've given you. So the, the question then remains, will Israel ever possess all of that land that, that God has given to them? Well, we know May 14, 1948, Israel was officially declared a nation once again. But even after that vote, Israel was still divided, the land and Jerusalem, a divided city. It wasn't until the 1967 war that Israel was able to extend her territory and unify Jerusalem. But as we know, even today, Jerusalem is far from being unified, and Israel is far from occupying all the lands that, that, that was promised. In fact, there's so much world pressure to return much of the conquered territory uh, away from Israel and to the Palestinians and, and others, and, which is all reality. They have no claim to the land whatsoever. At all, it would be like this, you know. You know, it'd be the type of thing when I gave my wife her wedding ring, and someone came up to her and said, uh, you know, man, that ring's mine. It belongs to me. Uh, no, doesn't it doesn't. I gave it to my wife. No, my my, my my wife would say, Well, you can't have it. It's special to me because my husband gave it to me. And they respond, well, we're going to start terrorist activity if you don't give us that ring. So compromises are made. People I bet Lisa gives away one diamond after another diamond, after another diamond until nothing is left at all because the fact that the, the, the fact is the person doesn't want bits and pieces of the ring. They want the whole thing. And this is what's going on in Israel if you don't know this by now. Palestinians, they don't want, oh, just East Jerusalem. They don't want this part of the land. They want the whole thing. They want the Jews gone. They want the whole thing. And resistance against Israel is going to come to a climax right before Christ returns to, to the earth. And I believe we're, we're there right now. I mean, just look at the uproar that we had over President Trump's announcement of of moving the the embassy uh, into Jerusalem from from, uh, Tel Aviv. I mean, the thing of it is, this was passed way back in in 1995 in what was called the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995. Basically, back then, stating that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and that our embassy should have been moved there by 1999. So, again... The Jews, are are, are, they have part of the land. We know after the Great Tribulation period, when Jesus returns, he'll deliver the Jews and he'll reign over the whole converted and redeemed Israel, all the land. Now, sadly, during Joshua's leadership, apathy and unbelief and disobedience would keep the people from claiming all that God wanted for them. But again, here in verse 5 is a promise. Look at verse 5. It says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And this is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. know, this is one of six places altogether in Scripture that God promises not to leave you or forsake you. you might want to write these down Genesis twenty eight, fifteen, Deuteronomy thirty one six, Deuteronomy thirty one eight, first Chronicles twenty eight twenty, and Hebrews thirteen five. Genesis 28.15, Deuteronomy 31, six, Deuteronomy 31.8, 1 Chronicles 28.20, Hebrews 13.5. Over and over and over again, God tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with what things that you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, we can be content in every situation because of this promise. God is saying there's absolutely no way I don 't care how bad things look. there's absolutely no way possible I will ever, no never, no, ever leave you or forsake you. God is not going to abandon. I shall not leave you out, of, out on the limb. God will never walk out on his promises. And this is just what Joshua needed to hear. Now, following this strong promise to Joshua uh, came a threefold call to courage. Joshua is to be strong and courageous because of three things: number one, because of the promise of the land. Look at verse six: be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give them. Now, although he would need strength and courage for the task ahead with his major military campaigns and all, uh, Joshua was to keep in the forefront of his mind that he would accomplish all that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and really the entire seed of Abraham, that God was saying, hey, this was a done deal. This isn't something that might happen. This isn't something that, hey, if everything, if the cards all play out, it's going to happen. No, you will succeed. This wasn't just a pep talk, give it to all. No, this was a promise. You will do it. See, God said to Abraham in Genesis 13, 15, For all the land which you shall see I give to you and your descendants forever. Land was promised way back in Genesis 13, 15. And now God is saying, Be strong and of good courage because this will be accomplished. You have my word on it. Number two, why Joshua was to be strong and courageous. It was because the power of the word of God. Look at verse 7. And eight, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I mean, a whole study could be taught in those verses alone. If Joshua wanted uh, success, if he wanted prosperity in the conquest of Canaan, which no doubt he did, then his success totally depended upon his obedience to the Word of God. Do you see that in our own lives? You want success in your own life. If you want, want, want prosperity in your own life in the sense of, 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 of you know, following what God has called you to do, then we have to be obedient to His Word. Now understand, at the time... There were no written scriptures before Moses. And God communicated to Moses by speaking directly to him. And Moses, he faithfully recorded all that God has given him so that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, were available to Joshua and the people of Israel. And in those first five books, God had given them all they needed to know as they were entering into the land. They were to not depart from it, God says, they were to meditate on it day and night and observe to do all that was written in it. But something more I want you to see here, and that is the fact that Joshua was was now to accept the written word by Moses as the word of God. This was now the word of God, is what what God was saying. They they weren't just history books written by, by Moses, they were God's revelation to man. The late theologian Francis Schaeffer made this interesting statement about this. He writes, Joshua knew Moses, the writer of the Pentateuch, personally. He knew his strengths, his weaknesses as a man. He knew that Moses was a sinner, that Moses made mistakes, that Moses was just a man. Nonetheless, immediately after Moses' death, Joshua accepted the Pentateuch as more than the writings of Moses. He accepted it as the Word of God. I like that. God was asking Joshua to accept Moses' writing as a Word of God. And here's why. If Joshua was going to have success, if he was going to carry out this calling that God placed on his life, then he would know, he would need to know the Word of God. See, it it just brings to life what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto unto all good works, thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, we need to understand that, that, that the Bible is more than just the writings of men. I like what Jeremiah says in, in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. He says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Oh, well, God's word is nourishment to my soul, Jeremiah says. Our spirits rejoice when we spend time in God's word. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our, our years. You know, it's kind of like you know, watching your favorite movie. You saw it once and you liked it. Then you watch it again. Oh, man, I didn't see that before. This is great. Oh, look at this part. Man, the same thing is true with God's Word. The more you dig into it and the more you go through it. For those of you that have been going through the, through the daily walk, the Bible in the year, I know that, that as you go through, you find something new each and every time you go through it. God's Word is alive. It's powerful. There's something new, fresh every time. Someone described uh, the Bible as, a, as a, it's like a telescope. If a man looks at the telescope, he doesn't see anything. But if he looks through the telescope, it expands his horizon. What good is just looking at your Bible sitting there on a the coffee table? You need to pick it up and, and look through it. The Lord says here, meditate in it day and night. That word meditate is, is a step beyond just the mere knowledge of the word or even talking about it. Meditate means that to think deeply on it or, or to chew on something. I know it's a gross illustration, but if you've ever seen a cow chew, you know, they're chewing and chewing and they go to swallow it, and then what happens? They regurgitate it again, right? Then they start chewing it all over again, right? And then they do it again and again. It's pretty disgusting. But, but that's kind of the idea that the Lord is telling Joshua, take the word and chew on it for a while. Like feasting on a a great piece of steak that's been marinating all day long. Oh, this is good stuff. You know, just each bite, you know, pray it in, think it in, apply it in your life. I think so often we take the word of God like fast food. You know, on the go, scarf it down, then we're out out on the road. Oh, okay, I did my reading for today. What did you read? I I don't know. I don't remember something about God and going to get groceries or something. I don't know. So God wants us to to meditate on his word, to think it over, to chew it. But more than that he says in verse 8 that you may observe to do all that's written in it. Not just chew on it and meditate it, now we have to obey it, we have to do it. Now many can talk about the word with many of us can talk about the word with anyone. We can argue all the different points of doctrine and talk about all the different theories. But I think when where we fail is when it comes to our daily walks, we fail in our relationship with others. We fail in our approach towards our spouses when we don't apply the word of God in our daily lives. We we, we do what is right in our own eyes and we wonder why we're not experiencing God's blessing. Well, I read God's word and, 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 and you know, but I'm still fighting and I'm still struggling this area and struggling that. Well, reading is okay, but have you applied it? Are you put it into action? He says, that you may observe to do all that is written in God's Word. Then verse 8, he says, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So Joshua is to be strong and courageous because of, number one, the promise of the land. Number two, because of the power of the Word of God. And finally, number three, Joshua is to be strong and courageous because of the promised presence of the Lord. Look at verse 9. Great verse. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Boy, he needed to hear that. He was facing an enormous task. There'd be giants in the land, fortified cities, but the presence of God would make all the difference. Martin Luther put it this way, one plus God equals a majority. See, no doubt there were times when Joshua probably felt weak, probably felt inadequate, probably felt frightened. Otherwise, God would never have told him three times, be strong and courageous. But with those three charges and the assurance of the promised land and the assurance of God's word and the assurance of God's presence, it was enough to last Joshua a lifetime. He could walk out in pure faith knowing that God was going to take care of him. On a personal note, some 19 years ago this month, the Lord gave me that very same verse, Joshua 1.9, as we were praying about coming out here and, and taking over church and, and leaving everything we knew back in California, the job that I had for 17 years and, and doctors that we had and, and family that we had, all that. And some, most of you, some of you that did the same thing we did. You know, but God gave me that verse. You know, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be afraid, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. You know, And he still gets me that verse all the time. We go to step out in faith. Hey, we're going we're gonna to try something over here. Okay, don't be dismayed. The Lord is going to be with you wherever you go. And they'll shut the doors. He'll open the doors. But he's there. And he's going to be with us. Look now at verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers, officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provision for yourselves. For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. I love that over and over again Joshua reiterates God's given you the land. God's given you the land. Now Israel's ownership of the land is unconditional, but Israel's possession of it is conditional. Israel had to take the land. See the key word of the book of Joshua is not victory. It is God who gets the victory. The key word is possession. Israel had to possess the land. See what I like here is that that the Lord spoke to Joshua and then Joshua turns and speaks to the people. And, and to me, that's a mark of a great leader. It's not that Joshua you know spoke to the people. It's the Lord spoke to Joshua, and then Joshua relayed to the people what the Lord spoke to him. I think this is something that all pastors or teachers need to grasp, otherwise they shouldn't be teaching. You know, It's not what you have to say. It's not what I have to say. It's what the Lord speaks to you that you have to say to the people around you. It's what the Lord says that matters. Not what man says. It has to come from God and you have have to personally appropriate what God has given you in order to share that with those around you. And what we see here is that Joshua, he appropriates God's word with certainty in in Joshua's commands. The new leader was now taking charge with confidence. He heard God speak to him and says, now we're going to go for it. Now, look at verse 12. So he says, to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua, spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest and given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren, armed all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. What we have here is that these two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half tribe of Manasseh, came up to Moses while Moses was still alive and basically said, hey, we want to stay where we're at. We don't want to cross over to the other side of the Jordan River. We want to settle you know, on this east bank of the Jordan. And Joshua said, that's fine that Moses said it was okay, but remember the condition that Moses gave you. When it's time for battle, the women and the children can stay there, but your men, you need to go fight with the rest of us. We're going in as a team, we're going in as a family here. And so your men need to go, and then after we conquer, and then your men can go back. And so look at how they reply in verse 16. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses and all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Wow, I like that. And what a great pledge of, of loyalty, uh, of obedience. In fact, they go so far as to say if anyone's disobedience they're going to be executed. They're out of here. Now look carefully, though, as we get ready to close. Look at verse 17 again. Verse 17 says, Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. So they're saying, hey, we're going to follow you just like we followed Moses in that sense. But that's great. But then they say, only the Lord your God be with you as he was, as he was with Moses. In other words, they're willing to, to follow Joshua providing he continued to show clear evidence that he was being led by God. You get that? We'll follow you as long as you're following God. <laughs> this is something that needs to be heeded, I think, by all of God's people. Otherwise, you have the blind leading the blind. You know, we see so much of that going on today, the word faith movement. You know, these guys, they're not following the Lord. They're just in it for the money. And, and you got these people that are following them blindly and, and giving all their money getting ripped off. Or I think of the, you know, remember the the David Koresh and the Waco tragedy. I think they just did a movie on that. It's coming out on TV or something. But some guy who claimed to be a leader and following the the Lord, I think he claimed to be Jesus or something. But it resulted in in, in the deaths of many. The people there said, we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Now we're going to see, as we go through the studies in Joshua, he was no blind leader of the blind. The hand of God was upon him all of his days. And he's going in strong with the faith of the Lord and the promises of his Lord. He boldly went forward where no man has gone before. And he led the people into the conquest of the promised land. What was the secret to Joshua's success? Look back up at verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. One of the best books out there on the book of Joshua is a book by Alan Redpath called Victorious Christian Living. Uh, If you can still get it, I encourage you to get it. It's a phenomenal book. But he writes this. He says, I have no magic formula for your holiness. I have no hocus-pocus treatment to offer you. I have no shortcut to spiritual power for any of you. All I can do is to say to you, get back to your Bible, meditate therein day and night, and go down before God on your face in prayer. For the greatest transactions of man's experience are made, not in a church, but behind closed doors. I like that. Finally, as a newly appointed leader, Joshua stood before his people. He inspired confidence. Joshua has always been considered one of the greatest heroes in the Bible because of sheer courage, uh, selflessness, and dynamic leadership. And I really believe if we want to see revival in the land, especially with our young people, young people being raised up in, into leadership, that we need to be those that display the same kind of leadership that we see in Joshua, leading in our homes, leading in our families, leading here at church, where it's truly evident that you've spent time in the Word of God and that you speak His words to the people around you. Only then, I, I believe, that will the young people say, man, I want what you have, and they want to step out then, and we'll be able to point them in the right direction. Who knows, God can raise up a great revival one more time among our young people. I think it would be great if it started here at Calvary. One more quote, I want to quote, then we'll close. This is from a a, a man named William S. Lasor who wrote, God expects each generation to get up in its own feet and face its own problems. God does not want us to stand around saying, well, now look at Moses, there was a great man. We'll never have another man like Moses. Moses is dead. Great man that he was, he is dead. Get up and face the problems of your day and your age. Arise, go over this Jordan. Do not long for the past. Do the work of the present. And God says, I will be with you. I like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night tonight, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this example of Joshua, Lord, that we have. But more than that, God, I thank you for the example of we seeing you, God, working in his life. We're seeing your strength that's evident, your word that's powerful, your word that changes our lives. Help us, Lord, as we study this book, Lord, to take these principles and not just give us head knowledge but, but give us application in our lives, Lord, that we would stand in Your Word, that we would meditate upon it day and night, that we would not turn to the left or turn to the right. We would not be drawn away by the things in this world that want to draw us away and get us away from Your Word, But we would stand fast upon Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this time tonight. We pray Your blessing upon our fellowship time. On our pray for traveling mercy on the way home.